this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So the pandemic has clearly affected the value of businesses big and small. But there's a way you can recapture a lot of that value if you think about your business through the lens of what an acquirer will care about. You know, as we grow our companies, oftentimes they become this sort of spaghetti ball of different products and services, but acquirers only care about what they could not replicate, what it would be difficult for them to redo or rebuild. And therefore, they're going to place a high priority on the products and services that you sell, which they deem to be truly differentiated. And that's why looking at your business through the lens of an acquirer can really be helpful in these situations where you're trying to rebuild. We can help you do it. Just go to valuebuilder.com. You can take a questionnaire that will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. We can also connect with you with one of our certified value builders who can be a sounding board for you as you go through this process. Best of luck with the rebuild, the restart. Please go to valuebuilder.com to check out the resources there. Don't you love it when the good guys and gals win? My next guest is a great example of that. Her name is Gabby Estrez, and she started a company, very simple business, timekeeping for lawyers. Simple for me to say. <laughs> Let's let Gabby uh, disabuse me of that fact. But in this episode, Gabby talks about the growth of her business, the key performance metrics that she looked at that made her business so successful. She ultimately viewed it to be worth between five and seven times top line revenue. She got 12 acquisition offers. What I loved about this interview was how she deftly played one acquisition offer off the next. She ultimately had 12 offers. She brought it down to a list of four and got one acquisition offer up by 40%, as she'll describe in this episode. Lots of really interesting tidbits for you as a aspiring value builder. Listen for the importance of the niche that she focused on and how she got a defendable market position, how important growth and her financials were in her acquisition. And it's just recurring revenue is such a, an important sort of secret sauce to the entire valuation algorithm. It was a, a pleasure to talk to Gabby. Here to tell you her story is Gabby Estrez. Gabby Estrez, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me about this company, iTimekeep. What did you guys do? Yeah, the, actually the company uh, name was Belfield. And, okay. um, the product so name Belfield, was, was iTimekeep. iTimekeep, right? right. right. Yeah, okay. So um, Belfield uh, is, was a legal technology company uh, which was solely focused on helping lawyers to create, capture more time, yes, mm-hmm. and, uh, and also uh, we made sure that the time that they captured was in compliance with what the clients wanted and also what the clients were willing to pay. Right. So this was an application, if I had an iPhone or an Android device, I could track my time. I was working for a client on, the, on my device and it would somehow get pushed up to the cloud. Exactly. Exactly. Everywhere, pretty much. 
So Got they it. could have, uh, you know, uh, didn't matter where they were in the world, right? With any device, any computer, they were able to capture their time and make sure that that time uh, was a time that was going to be paid by the client. I know there's a lot of timekeeping apps out there. How was yours different or tailored for lawyers? Yeah, there are, there are a number uh, of them. I think uh, what set us apart, it was our you know, business model and value proposition. And uh, we uh, were the first SaaS timekeeping and compliance platform in the legal industry. So, okay, but I think there are lots of other timekeeping apps out there. I get, what I'm hearing you say is the compliance piece was important. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, the other, uh, in legal, uh, most of the um, law firms, they already using some sort of um, uh, billing system, timekeeping system. What uh, set us apart, it's, uh, this was a, a, a layer um, that will sit on top of their practice management system or call it ERP that will integrate with any system that the law firm had. So we integrated with 32 um, um, you know, legal um, uh, ERPs. So the convenience for, for the, the, the law firm was basically the ability to enter um, you know, time from a mobile device anywhere they were in real time connected uh, with their ERP system. I see, because a lot of their work is done when they're in the car, the coffee shop, on the elevator, like <laughs> they want to capture that time. It's not always sitting at their desk where they have access to their ERP. Correct. System. I mean, think, uh, think a little bit of uh, like um, Concur, right? So, you know, you will use Concur for expenses, right? I don't, and, I don't know uh, Concur. What, what is that Concur? Oh, Concur is uh, one of the largest expense uh, tracking systems. Okay. And uh, kind of like a similar... Um, our goal was to become the concurrent of uh, time, right? But, um, but it's very specialized. So uh, we added engagement, we added gamification, uh, a lot of metrics and KPI to not only helping them to capture more time, but also help them to capture more time, uh, you know, through better behavior. Um, yeah, because anyone who builds by the hour, you know, the bane of, that managers existing is getting people to fill out their timesheets. It's always a big and, and it's painful, so. right? And there is yeah, a, yeah. there is a lot of uh, revenue um, to be leaked. Lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How important was? And let me ask you a different question. You had this idea of becoming the concur of the timekeeping space. Is that right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Why did you come up with that analogy, and how did you use an analogy? to communicate your vision in your company? Uh, that analogy helped us really well. And we use Concur um, because uh, pretty much anybody in professional services uh, and even investors uh, that cater to the professional services industry and technology, they're pretty familiar with Concur. So um, it was kind of like a, the perfect analogy because a professional um, um, services, um, you know, professionals, they, you know, track time, right? And they track expenses. So there was no, in the market for legal, something as uh, simple uh, and, and sleek uh, as concurrent 
for entering time. And, uh, and again, I mean, we were, we became uh, the leader in, in, in timekeeping in, for legal. Got it. And so how did you finance the business? What was, what was your journey? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. We started out uh, in 2012 and uh, we bootstrapped the company. We didn't have any outside investment and uh, we were lucky enough to have an, another liquidity event uh, years prior, um, you know, from our first company, which was also in legal. Uh, it was Ebeling Hub, and we sold that company to Thomson Reuters. So we were, you know, we were pretty lucky to have some ability to fund uh, the, the new venture. But I mean, we bootstrapped. Uh, we started out to be three. And uh, in 2012 and in 2019, we were over 45 people. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, one year later, we were already uh, profitable. And uh, we were growing, you know, um, 40, 50% year over year. Wow, fantastic. Who's the we, the, the three of you? Did you were you all co-founders together? Or who funded the, the, the first uh, initiative? Yes, um, it was, um, we studied out two of uh, co-founders, uh, myself and my, and my, you know, my Daniel Garcia, uh, my other uh, business partner. And then we had a third, uh, business partner uh, to join us. So, you know, a little bit like um, a few months later. But yeah, so uh, we studied out the three co-founders. Um, you know, my expertise was a little bit more in the, you know, running uh, and building companies, operations, finance. Um, one of my co-founders, Daniel Garcia, uh, his expertise was at building SaaS platforms, uh, which we already did successfully uh, in the eBilling hub. Um, and then we had another partner, uh, John Kunz, that, you know, started doing the sales and, you know, the business development. So we, we had a pretty um, good set of uh, skills um, together. So that's why it, we didn't have to go in and raise money. Got it. And how did you make money? Like, what was the, what was the, the, you know, the, the commercial relationship you had with customers? Did you, did you charge them on a SaaS kind of monthly basis, annual? Like how did you charge for your... Yeah, our revenue model um, was um, a subscription uh, model. Um, it was a yearly subscription uh, by which the, the law firm, and we also had accounting firms, not that many, but we had uh, one of the largest accounting firms in the world as client. Um, but they will pay a subscription fee uh, per user uh, per year. And did they and, pay for that up, up front? Yes, yeah. Um, and, you know, we have some that, you know, um, they will pay quarterly. Um, but for everybody, it was a yearly subscription. What did it cost to subscribe? What, what was the cost per user? Um, kind of like um, uh, to get it started, it was uh, $40 uh, dollars per month per timekeeper. So about, you know, $440 uh, um, a year. And was your strategy to go for the very large law firms or mid-size or how, who did you target within the legal kind of space? That's a, that's a, that's a great question because uh, in legal and even in professional services, the market is pretty well divided in large, medium, and small. So our strategy uh, was we want to democratize timekeeping for everybody. So we decided 
that uh, we really do not care about the size of the organization and uh, we cater to small firms from you know five lawyers all the way to accounting firms with uh, 5,000 uh, timekeepers or law firms with 10,000 timekeepers. So the value proposition was such that uh, you know no matter what you're using our client is actually the lawyer uh, in the simplicity for them. So um, that strategy was uh, a complicated one because the way that the large uh, segment buys, it's slightly different from the small segment. And the way that you market to the big segment, it's different. So, um, you know, but yeah, we, we started out actually with a mid-market. Why? Because the sales cycles uh, were faster. Uh, you have uh, quicker access to the decision makers. And that uh, allows to build a very robust customer um, um, base. And then, you know, we started, uh, you know, getting into the, the very large space, which is the space where everybody wants. And uh, for the smaller, it was a little bit more self-served. Uh, we did a lot of uh, inbound marketing, content marketing, um, you know, so they could uh, find us in, you know, through SEO and those type of things. Got it. So if I'm, if I'm just Joe lawyer working out of my home, I would, I would buy it online through your online channel. Is that correct? Or would I talk you, to the salesperson? You, you needed to buy uh, through a sales uh, person. Okay. Um, big portion of our um, distribution channel, it was uh, through direct sales. So yeah, we have some partners here and there, but the build bulk, uh, the, 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 you know, the bulk of our sales was through direct sales. So we had salespeople that only sold to large law or to the large market, and we had sales uh, reps uh, or accounts executives, however you want to call it, uh, that only sold to the small uh, market. How did you herd cats at law firms? So my, my experience selling to lawyers, which is somewhat limited, I, I will admit, but I did it very early in my career, and I found it really challenging because you have these big egos, all of whom think they know better, all of whom have a hack or a way around, and getting really big ego people to all agree to something is impossible in my experience. So what was your secret? John, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I think uh, the secret uh, the secret was we had something that lawyers wanted. Uh, and if they wanted it, they were going to do whatever they needed to do, talk to the CFO, talk to the CIO to make it happen. But part of their success as well, it was, uh, it was pretty innovative, right? Uh, when we started out in 2012, the iPad just came out, right? Still, iPhone was uh, kind of uh, new, Blackberry, you know, was kind of in transition. So, I mean, they were already uh, used to, you know, uh, having Blackberries, they saw the benefit. But I think the secret sauce, it was a very simple value proposition, right? Grab your phone, put your time in, you don't need any training, and it works. So, yeah. Got it, okay, that's helpful. And at the same time, it has me think, how did you defend your territory? Because any three guys in the basement could come up with an app. Uh, they do it now 
in these hackathons where like in like a weekend, they, you know, you can come up with an app. How did you defend against people, given the simplicity of what you had created, how did you protect it? Yeah, um, I mean, we, we have some, I mean, it's, we have some patent pendings in terms of uh, the gamification, but um, we built up a, a SaaS timing compliance platform um, that, you know, it was hard to replicate because uh, it kind of like a connected with uh, pretty much 40 uh, ERPs in professional mm. services, uh, right? And, uh, and it was extremely simple. It will take us about an hour uh, to deploy uh, the solution. So, you know, it was, um, it, it, you know, in the, in the surface, right? It was very simple, easy to use, but, um, but I think uh, the architecture was uh, pretty uh, unique. And, uh, and John, I'm all for, uh, I'm not afraid of, uh, competition, right? If you can build this, make it faster, cheaper, and better, right? And you can make the sales that we're making, right? Do the serve it all. So, you know, there was, um, but, uh, but even, even today, uh, there is no one competitor that has a SaaS solution like the one we built. Even, John, in our prior life with Evelyn Hub, we created arguably the first SaaS solution, you know, back in 2003 when it wasn't even called SaaS. It was called, you know, application service provider, right? <laughs> back in the day, right? And, uh, you know, so we, we, we had a track record of uh, building innovating platform. So when we sold Evelyn Hub, it still there was not a competitor. So, you know, we knew the market well, right? We knew the players and we knew what it would take to really compete one-on-one -on -one with us. That's helpful. What was the trigger? You take me up to 2018, 2019, you had 45 employees growing obviously very quickly from 2012 to 2019. What, what made you want to sell? Or I understand there was, you weren't actually intending to sell in the beginning. Yeah, um, and I think, um, uh, John, you can relate to that. As an entrepreneur, uh, you know, it's part of the plan to have a successful liquidity event at mm -hmm. some point, right? And, uh, and actually, um, one of the things that we kept in mind, you know, early on, it's how we build a company that we can sell for the number that we want, right? So we knew that that was happening. So we were growing uh, very uh, rapidly. So we wanted to partner with a financial investor or, you know, raise some capital to really take the company to the next level, right? Uh, you know, increase the growth from 50 to 75% because uh, the market was, um, you know, was prime uh, at that point. So, you know, we knew, knew that we needed to add more in sales marketing. I didn't even have a CFO. Um, <clears throat> you know, we needed to beef up the executive team. So uh, initially, we intended to to be an exercise uh, more for uh, for growth investment. Uh, but we knew that you know, going with a private equity, um, you know, we were going to sell probably the majority of the company um, with the possibility uh, to attract some potentially strategic. Uh, investors, strategic buyers at that point 
uh, they buy pretty much 100% of the company. So we have started out the process, uh, John, we have started, we hire an investment banker. So, you know, the process, it was pretty uh, intense. And, uh, you know, we got some, uh, LOI, um, you know, LOIs from both. Letters of intent, yep. Letters of intent from both um, strategic um, uh, buyers and from financial buyers. So many questions to begin with here. Okay, so you, you, you get these letters of intent. Um, what would you, first of all, before we go even that, mm-hmm. get into those, what did you think about, how did you think about valuation as you, as you, before you even saw the letters of intent um, and you, you and your partners were thinking about, you know, raising some money, did you have a sense of what a company like yours was worth in, in terms of a, a multiple of, I'm assuming it would be a multiple of revenue you'd be, you'd be thinking about? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent question. And that's a little bit of uh, what I, you know, the comment that I made uh, from early on, we wanted to build a company that, you know, we could sell for the highest multiple. So we, we really worked towards uh, some KPIs. Um, you know, the first one was growth. So, mm-hmm. you know, we knew uh, if we really focus on achieving these KPIs, we were going to get the multiple that we wanted, right? So the first one was growth. Uh, you know, keeping, um, you know, steady growth to be able to show uh, investor or buyers. Uh, the second KPI was retention. Uh, retention was extremely important to us. And, uh, you know, we achieve about 98% uh, revenue retention. And uh, we were at like a 95% logo retention, meaning that the accounts that we were losing, they were smaller, right? In the biggest scheme of things. Um, you know, and then, uh, of course, um, just to be clear, Gabby, mm-hmm. Gabby, just for uh, yep. just to be clear, when you talk about ninety-five percent logo retention and ninety-eight percent revenue retention, would that be on an annual basis or on a monthly basis? Uh, that was in the annual basis. Mm-hmm. Yes, fantastic. Good for you. Yes, and of course, we started looking at uh, gross profit margins, right? Which is something uh, very important in EBITDA. So we were um, lucky enough, right, to have an EBITDA over twenty five percent. So you know, uh, with those elements, uh, you know, uh, probably you are familiar in SaaS uh, with the with the rule of forty, right? And uh, the rule. Describe of the rule of forty. I forgot the rule of forty. <laughs> Remind me what what the rule of forty is. It's, yeah. it's a combination of growth and EBITDA, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, you know, your year over year growth plus your EBITDA should be something uh greater than forty. Yeah. So you know, in that that puts you in a in a in a category where uh, basically you know you can have a higher multiple. And uh, not only that, uh, uh, John. But back in towards the end of 2019, uh, the market was very bullish as well, right? Mm. Uh, private equities, they have a very healthy balance sheets, right? So, you know, we were, you know, pretty well positioned um, to, to have a great multiple. But in addition to that, the market was primed to pay for that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so you guys had the rule of 40, right? You had EBITDA margins 25 plus 
and your growth rate was right. most of, yeah. Right. And, and John, we also um, I measured something that I learned. Again, we didn't have a CFO, so a lot of these we learned as we go, right? Mm. And uh, we also learned about the magic number. Um, you know, in SaaS, uh, the magic number is pretty much the relationship between how much you spend in marketing and sales, uh, you know, um, relative to the new recurrent revenue that you generate, right? So in our SaaS business, your valuation, it's uh, based on uh, annual recurrent revenue, ARR, or the new term is CARR, right? Which is contracted annual recurrent revenue, right? So uh, meaning that anything that is not recurrent, uh, right? Like uh, implementations, you know, consulting and all that, right? Uh, that's not something that you're getting credit for. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we were very, very focusing. 99% of our revenue, it was recurrent. Got it. Fantastic. And so given that 99% of your revenue was recurring and you reached the rule of 40, did you have a sense what range of top-line revenue you thought was, was a reasonable valuation? Again, this is before you sort of evaluated the, uh, the letters of the tent. Yeah. Uh, so we wanted to be between uh, anywhere between, you know, five and, and seven, right? Got it. Um, uh, X, um, annual recurrent revenue. So minimum, it will be a five, right? Uh, you know, in, with the possibility to get seven, if not eight. And did you tell your uh, M&A banker, your advisor, those numbers? Did you, did you share the five to seven number with them? Yeah, we did. And, uh, yeah. and, and of course, right, the position is uh, we're going to do everything to really to maximize this uh, multiple, right? And that's yeah. their job, right? The, in, in, in sometimes, right, uh, they do have, uh, you know, private equity and, and you know, our um, um, strategic um, um, uh, buyer, they do have their own um, formulas and, and, and math, right? Which across that, they're pretty consistent, but also what drove a higher multiple for us was that our banker really, you know, set up um, kind of like a bidding war. Um, mm. So, um, which is something that, you know, we didn't um, put in the numbers. Right, so we were able to, you know, to to get that just because we had um we have um, offers and they were competing for the business, which was um you know very flattering for us. That's fantastic. You know, there's a school of thought. It, you know, when you sell a home, for example, you never want to tell your real estate agent uh, what your bottom line is because they're going to use that against you, right? They're going to kind of whisper in the ear of the other side that, hey, you know, you'll, pro you'll probably accept whatever. Yeah. Did, did you, how do you, how do you mitigate against that with uh, a mergers and acquisitions professional? Once you throw out your bottom line being five, how do you ensure that that doesn't become the maximum you're going to get because the M&A banker talks to the other M&A banker and says, oh, you know, you know, we can get this deal done if you, if you come up to five. Do you know what I'm asking? Yes, absolutely. But I think um, um, the investment bankers are motivated because they get a cut of the purchasing price, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, they're motivated 
Uh, and there are some milestones, right? There are some accelerators, right? That if they hit, they get more. So when we negotiated the uh, agreement with our banker, we made sure that we put accelerators so they were motivated to hit that number, and they did. Got it, got it. Excellent. So the, the accelerator, so there's a flat sort of success fee that they get, but if they reach a certain threshold, a certain valuation, exactly. they get a higher percentage. So exactly. Yeah. And, and is that was, higher? Go ahead. And it was kind of like a stagger, right? From here, here, you get this, right? But if you go beyond this, uh, you know, you're going to get a lot more. And is the accelerator percentage on just the incremental amount that they get or on the entire amount? Do you know what I'm asking? No, it was, it was just on the incremental that they will get. Yes. So for the second X tranche, you get a Y exactly. Uh, exactly. commission. Exactly. So take me back to the letters of intent. So you get letters of intent both from financial buyers, private equity groups, and as well as strategic buyers. What was your reaction to those? Um, it was incredibly flattering. Um, um, John, we had a... Um, less than a dozen of uh, letters of intent. We, I mean, to be completely honest, in our wildest dreams, uh, we knew that we had a good company. We knew that we did a lot of things right, right? Not because we knew it, because I made all the mistakes <laughs> already, right? Yeah. And uh, it was a, an extremely flattering, um, um, you know, event that, uh, you know, you can have so many uh, heavy hitters uh, bidding for uh, your business. Uh, but it was extremely difficult, the process, to go from the initial uh, offers to narrow it down, you know, to, you know, to a few. Why was that so difficult? Um, pretty much, uh, there were, the, the, out of the, the, the kind of like a dozen, right, there were some that, you know, there were not, uh, competitive anymore, right? So those were easy to be eliminated. But um, but at the end, there was a handful, right? About uh, four of them, uh, which was a mixture of uh, strategic and financial buyers. In each of those, they had an amazing value proposition, right? Uh, they had an amazing uh, teams. And um, in... You know, it was hard because, uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you don't know how they, my uh, people uh, was going to take uh, the transition, right? And, um, you know, how they, how they really are going to behave after they acquire the business. But, um, but, I mean, we were very, very lucky. So the, the, the few that we had at the very end, extremely professional, uh, very uh, genuinely um, interested uh, in the business, and uh, and I knew them, and through the process, you get to know them really personal, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you talk to these people pretty much every day, right? Uh, you know, they know more of my daily life than my husband, right? <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, it, it was really hard to, to choose, you know, one telling the other ones, uh, you know, no, and, uh, you know, we we got, like I said, a little bit of a bidding war after that, but um, but it's um, it, it was extremely humbling uh, event uh, for us. Good. 
Good for you. Now, with the bidding war, you had multiple bidders at the table. Did, did so? Did you say to all four of the shortlist, you know, you're you've got to increase your bid or you're not going to get it? Did you actually say that we've chosen company A and company B, you know, improve their offer again? Like, how did how was the mechanics of that working? Yeah, actually, that, that part of the negotiation was um, handled by uh, the head uh, of our investment bank, right? And, uh, but yeah, so they will say we have a, um, he couldn't name any names, right? And even today, right, um, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, confidential, but they will say there are other bidders that are a lot higher, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, can you improve your offer? And it was so interesting because uh, some immediately improved it, right? Uh, there were uh, some others that said, no, I'm not going to play the game, right? And, uh, you know, I want to talk to the founder, right? I want to talk to Gaddy, right? And, uh, and it was interesting as a part of the negotiation because, uh, you know, one of the um, um, potential acquirers, it's, uh, hey, Gaddy, uh, you know, if we are the vendor of choice, right, kind of like what you do in sales, right, then, right, I'm going to get you to the number that you want, right, but I'm not going to play this game. But uh, interesting enough, right, everybody ended up uh, playing the game, right, uh, increasing their bids, and, um, but uh, they were very consistent. I mean, it's kind of like these people talk to each other, John, because uh, I don't know how they did it, right, that when they resubmitted an updated offer, they were pretty similar, you know? So, so it was uh, even harder to, to choose, you know? Do you think that the M&A professional representing you was sort of, uh, it sounds like they were sort of feeding information to the people saying you've got to, you know, you're going to have to increase this, you have to decrease that, you're going to have to change this. Yeah, he, he will give them some cues, right? Mm -hmm. Say, so the minimum, I mean, just to play, uh, you need to be at least in here, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, you know, and, and, and even we had a, we have some that said, you know what, at that point, I cannot, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go, so I'm out. Right, so we had one that was uh, out out of the you know the four, so we got it uh, down to three, and um, but yeah, so he will he will help them um, you know to to better their offers. What was your uh, what was that call like you had with one of the acquirers that wanted to talk to Gabby? What was it like to go through that experience? Oh my, it was terrifying, <laughs> terrifying, and. Uh, you know, because I call my banker, right? And he gives me some uh, talking points, right? But it was, uh, it was terrifying because I really love uh, that, um, you know, you know that, that potential acquirer, right? Mm. Their value proposition, the investments that they had made, right? And, uh, you know, you got to play a little bit of, um, you know, like a, like a stone face, Kind of, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You cannot give too much because, I mean, otherwise I could have ruined the negotiation from the banker, right? So, you know, it's like a little bit of this is a very hard decision. This is the harder decision, you know, that I ever made. We are evaluating our options. We're lucky enough to have other options that, you know, fortunately for us are higher than yours, right? So it will be great, uh, you know, if you can do anything better, right? So, but yeah, it was... Uh, 
yeah, it was uh, it was hard. <laughs> and, and 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 to be clear, that acquire did increase their offer, even though they yes. said they weren't going to play. Interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. So we'll uh, we'll take the I'm not going to play that game comment uh, with a with a grain of salt. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. So this is helpful. So in terms of the coaching, what coaching did your M&A professional give you in order to have that call, that potential choir? Like, did he or she say, you know, answer this question this way? Uh, don't answer this question no matter what. Like, what, what sort of coaching did you get? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point because uh, his, uh, his main uh, thing was you got to be yourself, right? I cannot tell you what to do, right? You are the, you know, the CEO, the CEO, you are the founder, right? But, uh, but if you start negotiating yourself, right, you are hindering our chances, right, to get a better deal, right? So let me, if you want, right, let me negotiate this, right? And, uh, you know, be very grateful, Right, but um, but my he didn't he, he never said hey you gotta do this right it's uh you know be be you right but uh stay away from um kind of like a getting yourself into a rabbit hole right and mm. uh he said you know you know, you know exactly when you are going into that right make sure that you avoid this so it was pretty it was pretty neat and uh you know. You had these four offers, and and they're starting to come up, you know, uh, in unison, if you will. <laughs> what what was the the improvement from the the original offers that you received, based on the the kind of cat and mouse game, like on a percentage basis? How much did you get them up over that negotiation period? I mean, it was funny because uh, one was uh, almost forty uh, percent. And wow. uh, and there was uh, and the other ones that they were more level, it was uh, 20, uh, 25 percent from the, wow. the from where they were. So from the original, it, it, it was uh, it was substantial. It was substantial. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And what other factors? Now, 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 John, we knew right. One of the beaters, right? We knew right that they threw a very low ball, right? And they and we knew that they were not serious about it, right? Mm -hmm. So. And uh, so we knew that with this one, right, uh, you know, they, they pretty much, they, they have what it took to double their offer, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were pretty wealthy, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you, you kept them in from the long list of a dozen down to four, you kept them in because you knew they had exactly. more to give. Yeah. Exactly. We, exactly. That's exactly how it happened yeah. they had a lot more to give yeah so a lot more love to give <laughs> absolutely right and they got it right <laughs> so great. yeah i love it i love it so um what other factors did you look at as you evaluated these offers um clearly price was one what were the other things that made an offer either more attractive to you or less attractive Oh my goodness, I, that's, the, that's the hardest question. So, um, because uh, every of the offers, uh, they had so much positives, right? Mm 
And, uh, but again, right, uh, it was a big difference between going a strategic uh, or going with a financial, you know, uh, private equity, right? Why? What was the difference between them? Well, because uh, with a strategic, uh, you know, I knew um, that my involvement was going to be limited after the purchase, right? So um, basically, right, um, we had agreed, right, preliminary, that uh, my role was going to be more as a strategic consultant, right? Meaning that I was not going to be running the company and making the decisions, right? Whereas uh, with the other uh, offers um, on the financial, um, um, you know, buyers, they were going to uh, purchase a, a portion, a majority of the business, but still I will retain, you know, a, a percentage. And, uh, and the idea was uh, I was going to continue to run uh, the companies, right? One, you know, I will continue to run on the helmet. The other one, they were going to put, um, you know, um, a new um, CEO or something like that, which was fine, right? So anything that will take. So, I mean, they were very uh, different, right? And um, the difficulty came uh, doing a soul search of what I wanted to do uh, with my life, right? Uh, did I want it to uh, kind of like a take all the chips off the table, right, in cash out? Or, you know, was my heart, you know, building the business, growing the business? So, you know, on the financial, with a financial buyer, so, you know, it could be sold to an strategic later on, right? And, um, and I didn't know. Uh, John, to be honest, right? Uh, am I ready to cash out, right? And uh, and on the other hand, do I want to really keep the pressure going, right? And not only that, uh, increasing. So you know, I I you know I had a, a an executive coach. He really helped me a lot, right? And uh, the decision was really based on uh, facts. Right, and um, in numbers, I kind of like uh, worked really hard to put the passion away, and um, and we decided to go uh, with a strategic buyer. So we sold hundred uh, percent of the company. What questions did your executive coach ask you in order to help you determine whether you wanted to cash out or <laughs> or? or not. Yeah, I, I remember he saying, right, Gabby, do you understand that if you go with a financial buyer, you're not in majority anymore, right? You are not going to be the majority, right? You can be the CEO, but I mean, you have a board to report right now. Do you understand that, right? And uh, because we didn't have any investors before, right? Uh, I never had a board, right? Yeah, we had an advisory board, right? But pretty much I would call all the shots, right? So for me, it's, uh, you know, can I thrive in, the, in that environment, you know? And um, in, in, in the second part uh, was, um, yes, uh, I am tired, right? I've been doing this for 20 years, right? Just keep running, right? To continue growing, uh, 50, 75 percent, right? So you know, I don't know. I I doubted myself, and uh, you know, uh, should I take a break? And uh, that that was kind of like a how he coached me uh, to make to really get to the bottom 
of my of my soul, right? Uh, to 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 make a decision. But but again, even though when I made the decision, I was pretty torn uh, apart. <laughs> Did you think about what you would do after? I mean, you're obviously a young person. Uh, clearly not ready to retire. I hope you're not ready to retire. Like, did you think about what you wanted to do after the fact? I did. I did, but I couldn't find an answer, John. I couldn't. Mm. I couldn't. Uh, you know, and one of the things that I realized, it's um, that that was my identity. That's what I thought who I was, right? I was uh, a CEO, an entrepreneur, right? And, uh, and that's what people uh, knew me for, right? Mm -hmm. So that was so into my identity. Um, and that for me, going this way, I was going to lose my identity because, John, I couldn't see beyond, right, the sale, basically, especially, um, you know, with a, with a strategic buyer, right? And, um, but I knew, right? that uh, I was giving options to myself, right? So a little bit of, uh, I don't know what is that thing uh, after uh, the sale, but uh, what I know, it's a now I can slow down, slow down a little bit and uh, take the time to really figure out, you know, what is the next thing that I wanted to do. It's still, I'm in that uh, search, right? I'm getting closer, but... Um, but yeah, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of uh, understanding, you know, and uh, who you are, right? Uh, giving up some of your identity, right? Mm -hmm. And um, but yeah, I mean, we were fortunate enough, John, you know, that if we don't, right, we don't have to do this again, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and you're very fortunate to have uh, options that you never imagined. Uh, before because you're so busy, right? Making the number, right? Making the quarter, right? That, you know, you don't know anything else, basically. Like, what are some of the, I mean, we're recording this in April 2020 where we're all stuck in our homes and COVID uh, land. What do you, what is on the horizon for you? Like, as you think about the possibilities now with the economic success that you've enjoyed, like, what are some of the, you know, like the old game shows where you had like door number one, door number two, door number three. Like, what are the three doors that you're thinking about? Yeah, um, I want to, I want to give back. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, I didn't get here by myself, right? Uh, you know, there was a myriad of uh, coaches, right? And incredible people that, you know, fuel and help me to succeed. And, uh, and one of the things that I want to, and that I have started, it's, uh, you know, working with uh, companies, right? Or working with the startups that are uh, minority owned, right? Hmm. Uh, as a female uh, entrepreneur in technology, uh, it was really hard, um, um, John. So if, if, if there is any way, right? And not only that, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a female in tech, right? I'm a minority, right? I'm from mm -hmm. South America, I'm Latina, whatever, right? So, um, you know, part of my heart, it's, uh, you know, I got a lot from the system, the people. Um, so, you know, I'm figuring out some ways how to structure some sort of organization that can help me, you know, 
pass these uh, 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 lessons, right? And uh, learn from them and, and hopefully help them to succeed as well. Makes sense. Makes sense. Did you buy yourself a trophy? Tell me you bought yourself something. <laughs> you must have done something to celebrate this My amazing goodness. win. John, our trophy was going away and travel for, you know, several months, right? Fantastic. So were you able to do that before COVID? No. Oh, no. 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 And then, <laughs> right? And then, so we were going away the same week uh, when oh. all this thing uh, started. And yeah. uh, yes, so I'm still waiting for that moment. A right? Check. Yeah, it must take a <laughs> yes. Check. Where are you going to so, go? What's what's on your list of? So, uh, uh, well, the first thing, right? We were going to go to like uh, Asia, Thailand, Cambodia, and all mm -hmm. that, right? Sure. But uh, you know, everything started, you know, around China, so we didn't. Sure. And then, um, you know, we were we have a lot of family in Spain, so you know, we were going to go to Spain and you know, travel around Europe mm. and. You know, our plan is to leave. I have, uh, you know, two teenage boys. So it's leave, you know, some part here, some part in, in, in Spain, basically. Mm. So, you know, the trophy is, uh, you know, is, you know, should we buy something in Spain, right? But, uh, but, but all of that is on hold up until, you know, whenever. So. How was the emotional... Uh, how has your emotional state been since you sold in, I think, November 2019, was it? Uh, we sold in December. Uh, December 2019. 2019. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we're, we're recording this in, in April 2020, so it's been about four months. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the emotions that you've gone through over that four months? Um, the thing is, I mean, the coronavirus has changed a lot, right? We didn't we didn't plan for this, right? So even even the emotions have been shaped to adapt to this new reality, right? So, but um, kind of like a right after the transaction, I was still pretty active uh, in the transition, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it didn't hit home um, as hard, right? And, uh, and right when, you know, I was uh, ready to start kind of like uh, um, separating a little bit uh, uh, more of the business and, uh, and I started, you know, doing some things that were more enjoyable, right, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus hit. So, um, yeah, I think on the emotional side, uh, there, there has been uh, a lot of unplanned events right mm -hmm. that uh you know we needed to to readjust basically it's gotta feel weird to you know you, you work your whole life to get to have this incredible success you enjoy this amazing liquidity event you have all this money and nowhere to spend it. I mean, there's only exactly. so many boxes you can have for Amazon shipping to your house. <laughs> right. There's only and so you much crap to be you can buy for your house. Right? <laughs> right. You try, right. You don't want to have, yeah, you don't, well, right. don't want to have all these. So you're like, yeah. I got all this time, all this, and, not, and I can't spend it. I can't go do right. anything. That's got to feel right. weird. Yes. But, um, but I, one of the things that, um, I mean, I was very, I wanted to be very conscious about is, uh, this shouldn't change much, uh, you know, who we are, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what it changed is that now we have uh, a lot of options, right? 
and uh, we can do things in our terms and in our time. But even, uh, John, you know, I have a one 18-year-old uh, and I have a 16. Of course, they know their transaction, but they don't know details, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, yeah, they can, they can probably do some math or whatever, right? But, uh, you know, we try to make sure that that doesn't, you know, change much, you know, who we are, right? And, uh, you know, and that they, they still they need to work hard for, you know, yeah. for themselves, you know? Good for you. Good for you. Well, it's been a, just a, a tremendous pleasure for me to hear your story, and I wish you all the best. I hope, I hope the travel restrictions get released and you can go travel the world as you deserve. Uh, Gabby, what's the best way if people want to, I don't know if you accept LinkedIn connections, for example, or if a social media account you want to point to, or a website, where, where could people reach out to you if they wanted to say hi? I think uh, LinkedIn is uh, the best. Okay. Uh, you know, I have an open profile. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love to, you know, uh, get new connections, uh, learn from people. Yes. And, and, and you're Gabby Esterez on, it's Gabby or not Gabrielle? Uh, no, it's Gabriela. It's Gabriela, uh, Gabriela okay. uh, Esterez. But, okay. there, but, but there are not many of, 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 of that, right? <laughs> you're not so, too hard to track down on social no. media. All right. Well, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes uh, as well. Uh, this was a, a tremendous pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.